I don't find it uh, real weird that um, the people that we love the most, we care about the most, that are caught up in things that we're completely powerless over, um, that we come here to this place before this God to ask for deliverance because that's where it's found. It's found here. We know it. The world doesn't have answers for things like this. God alone has answers for things like this. And I know that many of you are proof of that, and I'm proof of that. Um, I have had my children walk in addictions at different times. I think I have one that still is, and, and there's nothing I can do about it. And it kills me, and, and mom's heart and my heart breaks for this kid because there's nothing we can do about it. And it seems hopeless, and it seems over. It seems like the story's written. And then I remember me and who I was, um, a guy who I thought story was written, uh, beginning and ending with drugs and alcohol, and that's it. Um, and it's not, it's simply not true. Um, God, God did a miracle with me. He's done a miracle with many of you. Um, and we also know here that, that drugs and alcohol are, are not the main issue. It's that we're rebels towards God. We um, are, are against him. And we will find all kinds of ways to live in a manner that's against him, hiding from him and suppressing the truth. And so um, I, I, I just... Um, I get chills, man. I get touched every time I see people coming in with that desperation for the people that they love and coming here with it because that's the, that, that is the correct place to come. Uh, God is capable. He is able uh, to save to the utmost even the person that seems the farthest away. And, and I think we all understand that sitting here today if we're honest with ourselves and who we were. So um, anyway, it's, it's always a great encouragement. Um, e even though those are heavy things, um, to, to see us coming together um, to, the, to the, the great healer, uh, the great deliverer. So uh, we are still in Peter. We are in 1 Peter. We are in chapter 3. And we're just going to finish up kind of this subject that we've been on, that Peter's been on through chapter 3 of submission. How many of you have enjoyed this study on submission? Has it just encouraged, just tickled you to death? You know what I mean? Because uh, I know that it's something that we love so much. Um, submitting, coming under people, places, and things that um, don't even deserve it <laughs> a lot of the times. Um, and, and yet this is where Peter has taken us. And so again, the book of Peter in a nutshell, um, how the Christian is to live or conduct himself in a hostile, oppositional world. That's what we're looking at. So with, with subjection, when it comes to subjection, we first learned that um, we are to come under the government and human institutions because God is the one who actually put them in place. Now, of course, we all know that the Bible and other places will tell us where that line is when we do not come under the government, and that is when they start taking away our essentials that God has given us to do, okay? Um, but otherwise... Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that they will um, pass down for society, for our civil good, even things we disagree with and won't like, that we are to submit to at times. So there's submission there. And again, why do we do it? Because the government's good? No, because God's good, and he's the one that put them there. Because God is ultimately in control. The government has a ceiling too, and that ceiling is the almighty God, and we know that. So there's nothing to fear here when it comes to those human institutions and that government. Um, even when it's run by evil people towards wickedness. Um, then he moves into our vocation, where we work, how uh, an employer is to conduct himself under his, or employee is to conduct himself under his employer. So our master, our slave, to submit under them, even the ones that are wicked, even the ones that aren't great employers, you know? And then he moves even more personally into the home. How wives submit and come under their husband. And how a husband is completely um, outside of himself, understanding towards his wife. Um, and now... He's going to turn to finish up this subject of submission to you and me, us right here, the church, the body of Christ, the saved, the redeemed. How are we to conduct ourselves? How are we supposed to play in this sandbox together 
well without punching each other and stealing each other's things and calling each other names? How, how do we do life as Christians inside the church with each other? How do we submit to each other? All right? And that's what we're going to look at today. So there's going to be, again, some more practical things that probably won't tickle the ear too much, um, but hopefully are hopeful. Let's go ahead and read 3, 8 through 12. 8 through 12 is what I was originally going to take, but I'm just going to tell you right off the bat that we're, we're basically going to focus on 8 and 9. I'm really not going to touch on 12, and the reason is I'll just, or, or uh, 10 through 12, and the reason is I'll go ahead and give it away. It's basically he's quoting from Psalm 34 and just reiterating with that quote what he's saying in 8 and 9, and that's why you're not going to see me get too crazy on 10 through 12, all right? Just for time's sake, otherwise we'd be here till three in the afternoon. So um, he says in verse eight, finally, so it, again, he's summing up, he's bringing to a conclusion this, this topic of submission. All of you, that's us, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then the quote, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears uh, his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Um, if you were to turn back a page, which you don't need to, uh, but you can if you want, uh, to chapter 2 of Peter, verses 1 and 2 say this, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And then he says, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Question is, what does an infant have on its mind? One thing, milk. That's it. It has one thing on its mind. It's, it's not cookies, it's not steak, it's not beer, it's not soda. Like an infant's not desiring these things. It, 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 there's, it's single-minded. There's one thing that it has on its mind. And that is milk. That's what they desire. That's all they need, right? But once those infants get a little bigger, they turn into toddlers. Vipers and diapers is what they've, like, Vodi Bauckham calls them vipers and diapers, right? And, like, if you, if you think that we're neutral or we're born with a pretty good disposition, you haven't had a toddler because um, they're vipers and diapers. So... Um, how many of you have had toddlers? How many of you are toddlers? <laughs> well, this is what we're going to speak to today. So, all right, cool. I found this on the internet concerning um, the natural disposition of toddlers, how they think, okay? This is what it sounds like. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If I'm building something or doing something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you were playing with something and you put it down, automatically, it's mine. And if it's broken, Cheers, right? <laughs> I mean, that pretty much sums it up. We had four kids. They were all toddlers at one point. I mean, that's how it went down. So, um, and, and that's fine, and that's good, and that's cute for toddlers, but not for believers in Christ. Not for us. For followers of Christ, the big word is not mine, but yours. Not me, but you. Not self, but others. 
The good news and the bad news, and I've said this before, is that the church is a bug lamp. It attracts bugs. You and I were bugs, and there's bugs that are always coming in. Right? And I don't know if they're called bugologists or bug professionals, but what they seem to think, the reason that bugs are attracted to a light source is, is to, uh, it, it's, it's a place of safety from predators. That's what they think. Okay? It keeps them, it's a safe path away from predators. And the church is a bug lamp because our Christ-given identity and characters, people primarily about others rather than self, can be and should be a compelling testimony to an ever-darkening world. Um, we think very much the same way. We are drawn to light because it seems safe from predators, from danger, from the unexpected. So we seek out a safe path. We seek out refuge from those predators and that danger. And no light source, humanly speaking, is greater than the one that's found in Jesus, which is why the church attracts bugs. As pastors, I cannot tell you as a pastor, the amount of emails we get on any, any given week or phone calls or texts from people who want something from us. Do you know why they come here when their back is up against the wall in life? Because generally we tend to be about others. We're known for that. And so a lot of people play off our vulnerability, but they're also playing off of an actual characteristic that exists in the people of God, that we actually care. Peter's going to lay out for us basically what that light is, what illuminates the bug lamp in the church, and why the church is so compelling and attractive. He's going to do it basically in, in three ways, and I've kind of broken it up this way. I know it's cheap. It's kind of choppy, but I don't know how else to do it. He's basically going to speak to the attitude that the church should have, the response that the church should have, and then the, motiv the, the motivation for the attitude and the response. That's basically what we're seeing here in these couple of verses. All concerning our conduct and relationship to each other. And if we were to sum it up, if we were to sum up everything that Peter's saying here um, and talking about and encouraging us in, we could do it with one word. Love. Everything that he's going to speak to here is an attitude, a response, motivated by and for love. It's love. That's the canopy over everything that's being said. In fact, if you were to, if Jesus, when he did, summed up the law and the fulfillment of the law, he did it in one word, right? Love. It's not a new subject. Um, this, this is at the crux of what the Christian life is all about. So everything that, that Peter mentions here, we can find it under the canopy of love. Verse 8 we're going to look at first the attitude of the believer, um, which he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Of course, he starts with finally, meaning that he's coming to a conclusion on this um, subject of subjection, submission, basically love. Okay? So if the first thing he pulls out is unity of mind. Be of one mind. It basically means think the same thing. And I want to ask you, is that even possible? Is that even possible? Because as I look out across this room, it's obvious to me that this is a junk drawer, and I mean that in the, in the most complimentary way to you and me, of different types of people, thinkers, from all walks of life. We as individuals are not the same. We are not the same. If we just took the subject of music, for example, What's good music versus bad music? I would burn you down. I know I would. When it comes to music, it's one of those things that I'm right, uh, I know what good music is and you don't. We could do the same thing with movies. We could do the same thing with food or restaurants or style and on and on and on. We would not be of one mind if we sat around having those conversations. We would be extremely different. 
Um, even if we moved into the realm of Christian things, Bible things, we would not be of one mind on everything. If you were to talk about the rapture, and when it goes down, we're not all going to think the same way. I can tell you that right now. And some of you are like, really? There's other views other than mine? There are. There are other views than yours. Yes. And they even go way back into church history. They reach way back there. All right? Um, the work of the Holy Spirit. Cessation. Do we, do we live with the, with the Spirit ceasing now to do miraculous things? Or is he still doing miraculous things among us? We probably wouldn't all agree on that. How often should you take communion? We're all going to have different opinions. I mean, you could go on and on. Hymns or choruses, you can go on and on and on. We're, we're different thinkers. We have different opinions on these things. Typically, um, we tend to think that like-mindedness can only be achieved if somebody agrees with us on everything. If you uh, agree with me, then we're like-minded. But that's not unity. That's called uniformity. They're two totally different things, right? So how is it even possible what Peter is saying? How can we even accomplish what Peter is saying? Well, the word that he uses here for unity of mind is the word homophron, which means harmonious, harmony. In a musical sense, harmony is uh, the use of simultaneous tones working together in an orderly arrangement to achieve a pleasant, unified sound or effect, an outcome. In a biblical sense, harmony assumes differences among people who are brought together in unity under one master composer. Think of an orchestra. You've got all kinds of people that are different people, individuals from all walks of life, coming into a place with different instruments that make different sounds with different music tastes and different backgrounds and different influences. And they're gonna sit down and they're kinda try to do something together. How do they do it? Because they all sit in seats that are the same height, looking up to a master composer who puts everything in its place so that they're not playing against each other, but with each other. And for us, that master composer is Jesus. Jesus Christ is our commonality. He is our point of harmony. And if we know this and we understand that without Jesus Christ, if you removed him and who he is to us from this room right now, you and I have no business hanging out together. There is probably no reason why we would spend any time together, any of us, but because Jesus Christ is my master composer and your master composer, I want to be around you. Not only that, I'm drawn to you because of him. And because of that, there's harmony that's able to be achieved. We see this in, in analogies even like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and then again in 14 right? When Paul likens the body of Christ to a human body, knowing that we're all individual members that are not the same. My finger is not my toe. My tongue is not my stomach. We're made up of these individual components, but together it matters what one does, right? Together we're all working towards function, towards life, and it's the same thing with the, the body of Christ. So this is really what, what Peter is talking about here, is to be like-minded in the sense of harmony. I want to play my instrument in a way that complements your instrument. And I want you to do the same thing back. Why? For mutual blessing um, and encouragement and the building up of the body into the fullness of Christ, which we'll, we'll get to that as we move through this. So, um, I am compelled to have you because of the master composer in my life. I need you. I want you here, even though we're individually completely different kind of people, so that I can bless you and I can be blessed by you. 
The second thing that he says here, says have unity of mind, number one. Number two, sympathy, which literally means to feel the same thing. So first he says, think the same thing. And now he says, feel the same thing. If I truly love someone, I will feel what they feel. I will mourn when they mourn. I will rejoice when they rejoice, Romans 12. Because love does not comprehend a passive response to an active emotion within those that we love. Sympathy is that which connects the disconnected party to the affected party. And Peter says that we should have it for each other. And I do believe that it's not something that we can avoid at all with those that we love. Um, unless we just completely avoid the one who needs it. I think that's the only way that we can possibly avoid having sympathy for each other. Um, I hate to admit it, but I'm going to. I will see people from this perspective during worship services while I'm preaching. I have seen people over the years come in late, sit in the back, and weep the whole time and then leave. But my thought towards that person, when I recognized that they were there and that something was terribly wrong and broken, is if they come up and seek me out afterward, that's fair game. But I'm not gonna go seek them out. And the reason that I don't wanna go seek them out is because I don't wanna sympathize with them. I know that I will. I know that I will get caught up in that heavy thing that they are experiencing. And sometimes I feel like I just can't handle it. And sometimes because of my selfishness, I just don't want to do it. I feel like that's the only way that we can avoid this sympathy that Peter's talking about with each other is if we actually just avoid each other, which is a real thing going on in the church. A lot of people found during COVID when everything went on a hiatus and church went on hiatus, and we've talked about this before, that you can actually get the best part of church that you want from your house without the, kind, the parts of church that you don't want, right? So you can still get good preaching through your television. You, should, you can still get good Christian music through your radio and worship. You can still pray. You can still get all those things, but without the relationships, without the difficulties that come from me being up in your grill and you being up in mine and loving each other and sympathizing with each other and feeling what each other feels and walking through life that is oftentimes unforgiving with each other. It's just easier for us to not be around people so that we don't have to feel what they feel. And God has not called us to that. In fact, God did not do that but he came in the form of his son, one of us, to feel what we feel, to experience what we experience, to identify in every way with our brokenness and our helplessness and our griefs and our fears. That's an amazing thing to think about. Jesus showed us this first. He sympathizes. Where am I? A good definition of sympathy is this. You're hurt in my heart. It's basically what sympathy is. It's, it's your hurt in my heart. Uh, Peter says to have this, not to, not to run from it. That's why the church ought to be the best hospital that exists for the spiritually broken and for the downcast and for the emotionally and relationally wrecked. Again, I think this is why we come here when we have friends that we love and family that we love that are in heavy places and we desperately bring them before the Lord. We know that this is that place and it should be that place. The church should be that place because we can look at each other in those spaces and genuinely say, I'm with you in this. And you can look at me when I'm in my darkest place and say, I'm with you in this. And that means something. That does something. Peter says, be sympathetic. Number three, brotherly love. Okay? Uh, I grew up with a, a brother that's three years, old, three years older than me, and I chased him with a knife once. So um, brotherly love. I don't know a lot about that. Uh, but I, but I, loved, I did love him. 
even though I chased him with knives before. Um, the word here is philadelphos. Does that sound familiar? Philadelphos? Yeah, yeah. It gives the idea of a love that is fraternal. So this is a love that for whatever reason connects you with somebody at the deepest level, at the deepest level. And in the case of the church, um, actually, have you guys seen, you guys have seen like, of course, war movies. Anyone seen like Band of Brothers? You can watch those guys go through. Uh, they're interviewing the, 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 real, the real deal guys that are still alive at the beginning or end of each episode. And they're talking, it's called Band of Brothers for a reason. It was a, it was a fraternity of love they were bound together in this fraternity by um, something very deep and something very common that they all went through together, right? And for, for the church, it's the same thing, but that bond in the church is blood. We are all bound together literally by blood here, the blood of Jesus. We are all recipients of the same blood donor. We are all made alive by the same blood donor. We are all born again through the forgiveness of sins to a living hope through the same blood transfusion. And if we fail to recognize the shared rebirth emphasis that it's and its implications, we will fail to acknowledge and value each other with a brotherly love. This is why I can go anywhere on the globe at any time, and if I meet a fellow Christian, it's on. Me and that person have always known each other and we're always going to know each other because of that deep bond that we have in Christ. There was a dude the other night, I was invited out uh, to see a guy that came into town and I don't get to see him very often. He's a brother in Christ and I love him. And he brought with him another brother in Christ that was a pastor from somewhere else. I'd never met him. I didn't know anything about him. And immediately I'm calling him brother and he's calling me brother and we mean it because we're bound together in blood. There's a fraternity that's happening. And because that's a reality and it's a truth, we ought to live and act and respond with that brotherly love. Right? All right, moving on. Keep it rolling, keep it rolling. Peter says, have brotherly love. Number four, he says, have a tender heart. Uh, I'm not good at this one. You can just ask my wife. Um, I'm not a very soft guy. I am not a very tender guy. Um, and, and it's funny because this phrase in the Greek, the words that are translated over, literally means like your intestines. Um, that, that inner place or, or from the gut is what it's saying. The words used here for a tender heart literally means have good bowels. Isn't that awesome? Put that on your fridge. Have good bowels, you know? The human race has always had this common understanding that the deepest emotions we can feel are from the heart or from the gut. Uh, we still talk as if that's true, do we not? Uh, we say, what is your gut saying? Or we'll ask ourselves, what is my gut saying, right? Or we'll say things like, from the bottom of my heart. Uh, every time I get up to preach, um, there's this maelstrom of stress and anxiety that goes on in, in, inside of me because this is the last thing I ever would have chose for myself is to stand in front of people, okay? Um, and so for whatever reason, God did it. But every time it's a battle for me to come up here and stand in front of you, there's this thing that goes on and guess where it goes on? There's butterflies that fly. Where do they fly? In my stomach. They go on here in the deepest place. At, at, at kind of the, the core, <laughs> the base level, the deepest level of where I'm at. This is the, the place where Peter tells us to be soft, not hard. Where Peter tells us to be sensitive, not stubborn. Another way to translate this is uh, tenderheartedness is that we are to be deeply concerned for others. In other words, the church ought to be a place that the walking wounded are well cared for because we're deeply concerned for each other. We care for each other well that way. This is why we charge all of you, all of you, to be the best greeters and the best welcomers that this church can have. 
It's not a job where we pick one person and they're the person that stands at the door. We have not done that. If you go to this church and you call it your home and you're bought into what we're doing, you're on the bus going the direction we're going, you are a greeter. You are a welcomer. Why? Because we're a tender-hearted people that are ready to tend to and care for and be concerned for people that are walking in here from all walks of life. And some of them, guys, are miserable. We have no idea the condition, the state that some of these people are walking in with from week to week. But we sure the heck could be ready to tend to them with care and concern. That's having a tender heart. Just like that person in the back that I was talking about, sometimes where I'll see them and avoid them because I, I think we can do the same thing when we see certain characters come in here. Where immediately we have a judgment and go, that person's not like me. And we kind of stereotype what kind of person they are and, and say, like, I'm going to make sure I have nothing to do with that person. Jesus didn't do that. Neither should you. It's not about whether people are like us or not. It's about us having a tender heart, a heart of compassion for each other. Because there's life in that. All right? So be tender hearted. Again, I'm not preaching at you. I know it sounds like it. Um, I'm not good at this. I'm with you. I just have to stand up here so you can see me. Otherwise, I'd sit there with you. <laughs> he goes on to say, number five, as far as attitudes that we should have a humble mind. Have a humble mind. Not very good at this one either. Um, and, and I kind of think, like, why, why do we have to be told this? Like, this is something that we're told over and over again in the Bible. It's kind of assumed. Well, we have to be told it because humble or lowly people have always been viewed humanistically as weak as soft, as cowardly. It's, a, it's, not, it's not one of those um, attributes that the, that the world promotes. It actually promotes the opposite. It's the opposite of being self-confident, which is what the world tells us to be and have. A dude named F.B. Meyer said this, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above the other. And the taller that you grew in Christian maturity, the more easily you could take the best gifts in the highest places. But I have now come to realize that God's greatest gifts are on shelves one below the other. And that's, that it's not a matter of growing taller, but a matter of stooping lower to find them. See, the lower we come before God and others, the higher we ascend in our resemblance to our Lord. He had a life that was marked by humility. He did the unexpected. His actions were the unexpected and his responses were the unexpected because there was a humility that nobody could understand, even though he had the power to be completely authoritative. Humility is a key to loving well. And, and so again, in these, each of these attitudes, Peter encourages us to possess and walk in these, which are true marks of the Christ follower because they are true marks of the one that we follow. I am aiming at these targets. I'm looking at this text. I'm studying it all week. I want to do well with these. I'm aiming at these targets, though imperfect, while you're aiming at these targets, though imperfect. And we end up finding ourselves in large part being of one mind rallied around one purpose, right? But what about when it's imperfect? What about when someone isn't endeavoring to walk in these attitudes? Then what? And if you're married, you know what I'm talking about, right? This is where verse 9 comes in, and we move from our attitude to response. Verse 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain blessing. Um, guess what my first response is when somebody, it doesn't matter if they're inside the church or not, does me wrong. Payback. It's yours too. Payback. 
Because after all, I have grounds for it. I'm justified in it because they're the offender and I'm the offended. I'm the victim. And victims have rights to seek justice and to have justice carried out. It's like we're playing a game of battleship. That's almost what I feel like. Like someone took their turn, they damaged my ship, now it's my turn to try to, to sink their battleship. Like that's how I, 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 I like approach it. Like they deserve it. And I'm not particularly fond of what Peter's saying here because he's telling me that I'm not playing a game of battleship. He's telling me that I don't get a turn after their turn. He's saying the game's over, or it actually is, looks different than I think it does. He's telling me that just because I've been uh, fired up or fired on doesn't mean that I have the right or justification to fire back. And that doesn't sit natural with me. He's saying, do not fire back. Do not fire back. In fact, take a different tactic altogether. And I find it interesting, kind of compelling actually, in light of the fact that this is Peter who's saying this. You know what I'm saying? I can't, I can't help but think that there was this, this event that occurred in his life that's still maybe fresh on his mind as he's telling us this. And it's one that happened in a garden with Jesus when they came to arrest his Lord. You know what I'm saying? And uh, he sees this, this takeover, this unjust act going on against his Lord and so he feels that he gets to fire back now. So he pulls out his sword, and he goes to lop off the head of the soldier, right? And if he was a better warrior than he was a fisherman, he probably would have succeeded. Like, praise God, he wasn't a warrior. He just got homie's ear, right? And Jesus bends down and picks it up and, and puts it back on, right? And do you know what he says to him? Jesus says, Peter... Don't you know that those who live by the sword will die by the sword? This ain't the way we do things. Put it away. See, Peter was taught firsthand by the master teacher how to respond and how to not respond. It doesn't matter here whether Peter's talking about those inside or outside the church, which I believe primarily at this point in the discourse, he's talking about those inside the church. We're talking about one another. I believe he is going to transition back out of this again as you continue through three. But right here, I think he's, he's talking about us and us because let's face it, even though we're forgiven, we're still filthy towards each other sometimes. We're still just nasty towards each other. We don't act like we're brothers and sisters. We don't lead with love. We don't lead with concern. We're very much like toddlers where we're consumed with mine instead of yours. That's what Peter's speaking to here. But what he's saying is our response to such things when someone wrongs us, when someone does us wrong, when someone falls short, when someone steps over a line or, you know, changes lanes. As Christ followers, it's not to fight back, it's to bless back the right response is to bless back, not pay back. And what a ridiculous notion that is. What a foreign concept that is, unless you've been on the receiving end of it. Does anyone know what I'm saying? If I have never experienced the gospel personally for myself in my life, this would be one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. You know what I'm saying? But I have. I have experienced the gospel in my life. I offended and offended and offended and offended God. And he did not repay it for evil. He saved me. He led with love. He blessed. And you know what? It won me. 
That's why I'm here. Because I collided with a gospel and a love that makes no sense. One that I've never seen before in my life anywhere else. Anywhere. And I'm the recipient of it. I've experienced of it. Or experienced it, which is why this is not only not the stupidest thing I've ever heard, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. To not repay evil for evil, but to bless. It's because of the gospel. There's that old saying, we all want justice until it comes to us. And then we want, yeah. Then we want mercy. When was it that Christ died for you? Was it, was it when you cleaned yourself up? You know what I mean? Was it when you started like knocking off sins, like one after another, like you just got, got a pen and paper out and you're like, okay, here's all my worst stuff. And then you just started handling business on those and getting them out of your system. And then at some point God was like, all right, I guess I'll have something to do with you now. Is that how it worked? While we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, rebels, enemies, offenders, Christ died for us. While we were in it, Christ died for us. He had every right to do the opposite, and he would have been just in doing so. It would have been complete justice. But he did not repay us based upon what we deserved for what we had done. He blessed. And brothers and sisters, he's calling us to do the same thing with each other. And even with the world, to bless. This is what we're called to. This is our response. Um, let me just say this, and I think we all know this, but I think sometimes we need to hear this uh, maybe louder. If there's ever been something that separates Christianity from every other religion and belief system that exists on earth, it is this. We love our enemies. I know, that's, I know that hurts and I know that's a hard one. This is what makes you and I truly a peculiar people among the, the nations of this earth. We love our enemies. And we do it because our Lord showed us how to do it. Our response to wrongdoing against us is one of our greatest testifying factors to who and what we believe in. It's a big deal. It's a, um, it makes the light really bright in the bug lamp, how we do not repay evil for evil in here. That's the way the world does it. They, 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 they want to see something else, and, and we, we have that something else. All right? And it is that um, we're going to move into motivation here, and I'm actually already talking about it, so I'm, I'm just going to skip a bunch of stuff. The, the motivation of why we act the way we do, why we walk in the things we do, uh, have the attitude that we do, and then respond the, the way that we do is the, the gospel. The gospel is the ultimate motivating factor of how and why we can walk in these things, why we even have a desire to walk in these things, because these are things that I never had a desire for. <laughs> it is Christ in me that has now um, um, installed this desire, this need to please God and to walk in righteousness. Whereas before, I had no desire to do that. I didn't care that I was sinning. I didn't care that I was offending him. I didn't care that I was unrighteous. But now we, we have that. The motivating factor of us walking in this is the fact that Christ is now in us. That he's shown us this and that he's imparted this mind about us, Right? Um, how many of you like blessings? Probably a stupid question. But maybe one of you really spiritual people out there are like, nah, nah, nah. All I need is God. I don't need a blessing. You know, we all like blessings, right? We all like blessings. And this is kind of moving into verses 10 through 12, which I'm not going to pick apart. We all like to be blessed. We all like to feel blessed. We all like to get blessed. Do you want a good life? Do you want a good life? Again, you might think, I don't, I don't know how I should answer that. Will I sound spiritual if I say yeah? Yes, you will. It's okay. You want a good life? I want a good life. 
I want a good life. All right? Here's how to do it. If you want a good life, then love people. Then love people. Be about others, not you. Instead of specializing in yourself, specialize in other people. Um, we have a shirt, one of our logos, and it turns heads all the time when I wear it in public that says, come and die. You know what that means? You know where that comes from? It comes from the Bible. It's an invitation that Jesus gives us to come and die so that we may actually live. See, the key to a happy life and a full life of joy and blessing and happiness is not the thing that our flesh tells us, which is you need this, you want this, you need to get this. If you, if you do these things, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fix you. It's going to bring you that. All we got to do is look at Solomon to know it's not true. This dude had everything. He, I almost said something I shouldn't have said. He exhausted, he abused everything that the world had to offer as far as riches. Been there, done that, wrote the book, and he found it all to be empty. Vanity. Just vanity. Because happiness is not found there. It is not found in you being healthy. It's not good health. It's not a good body. Working out, it's not in a vacation on a tropical island. Even though my brain tells me that in every February and March, this is where happiness is. It's not there either. Happiness is not found in payback, which my head tells me that too. Oh, it's going to be so satisfying and so fulfilling if you just exact this thing that that person did to you. Happiness is found in you being less concerned with yourself every single day. It's in you dying to being a toddler where it's all about you. When we become more concerned about others, the people around us, we actually find blessing there. We are then blessing. There's blessing going out and there's blessing coming back in. This is, the ver this is the end of verse 9. Do you see it there? For blessing you have been called. For a blessing. So this is like the best like, kept family secret that God is letting us in on. Like I'm going to bless you through my son. I'm going to bring you into a relationship with me. And I'm doing that. I'm calling you. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing you in so that you can be a blessing to others. And then you're actually going to achieve and accumulate and experience more blessing from doing that. that, that that's what 9 is saying. That's what verse 9 is saying. We have been called by blessing to bless others to get more blessing. And so the key is others. Blessing is found there. When we are about God and we are about others and we are not sitting around consumed with everything that I don't have or every way that I was mistreated or every way that I've been cheated, there's no happiness there, only misery. It's tiring and miserable. But when we are outside of ourselves like Jesus was, do you realize that he didn't need to leave that place that he left in glory to take a demotion? To be like us? Like he, he could have held on to that. He could have grasped and held on to his glory that he had with the Father in heaven. But he let it go. He kind of died there before he came and died here, in a sense. Like he, he forfeited everything to come here and die. He wasn't about himself. And you know what? There was joy in it for him. It tells us that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. There was blessing that he was pouring out and blessing that he knew was coming back on the backside of it. And it all was achieved by humility, by the fact that he was not about himself, but that he was about others first. 
gosh, guys, if, if we live like that, if we believe that and we walk in that and we, we endeavor to, um, to practice this with each other in our lives, this is going to be the most beautiful orchestra that the world has ever seen under that master composer. This is how we've, this is how we've been ordained to live on earth as his bride in a way that doesn't look like all the other relationships and the way that they treat each other out there. You know what I'm saying? Um, I just completely bombed my notes. Like, there's, uh, just forget it. I think, I think you guys get the point, right? I think you get the point. Come and die is the best thing that can happen to us. To die to self is the best thing that can happen. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And it doesn't mean that I don't fall back in that, into that idolatry of um, self-awareness. Um, I do it all the time, um, but there's no, there's no reward there when I do. Like, it's getting easier to snap out of that and be crucified again because I've never experienced the joy and the happiness and the blessing ever anywhere with anything that I have when I'm not about me and I'm all about loving God and others. That's where happiness is found. God, thank you for your word that never fails. I thank you for the boldness, like even the audacity of your word, that it says some of the most ridiculous things that seem so backwards, and they prove every time to be as the ultimate truth. They're true. And I thank you, God, that you have preserved and exposed and proclaimed to allow us to know your truth, to allow us to know that which you've chosen to reveal about you and about us. And so thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our great master composer that even though we're, we're such different people individually has brought us all together to participate in the same song that's being played. I pray that the one that comes out of this church, God, this small church that's basically invisible on the map would be just a beautiful symphony because of the way that we love each other. And we ask this to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.